The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. I have a confession to make this morning. I gotta be honest with you, I can't even start my message without first giving an admission of guilt. I'm confronted this morning with the realization that if I don't do something, if I don't put all my cards on the table, if I don't have a degree of transparency with you, then I'm not even going to be able to proceed in the message this morning. What I'm about to say is going to shock some of you. You're going to find it hard to believe. Others are going to be like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it all along. Some of you are going to be baffled. And it doesn't matter what I say. It's not going to convince you that what I'm saying is true. You ready for this? Believe it or not, and I know it's going to be hard for you. I did a lot of stupid stuff when I was younger. I know that most of you don't believe me. Some of you are trying to recover from shock, but not only did I do a lot of stupid stuff, but I can prove it. I could spend all morning proving that. So the year was 1999. I was 17 at the time. And my brother and I and a friend of his were on the way to our friend's house. I have a brother. I've got three brothers. This one's 14 months older than me. His name is Jerry. And it was Jerry, myself, and our friend Tim were traveling one night to go to Tim's house when all of a sudden the alternator in my brother's car went dead. You got to love the 1986 Chrysler LeBaron, right? Hey, don't hate. K cars are awesome. Okay, who am I kidding? I had one. They're not awesome. But the alternator died, and the car begins to drift to a stop. And here's where the problem really began. Because as the gears in the motor began to wind down, the gears in my head began to pick up a little bit. And I thought to myself, hey, self, wouldn't it be better to push the car while it's already rolling rather than let it come to a stop and then have to start from a dead stop? After all, objects in motion tend to remain in motion. Objects at rest tend to stay at rest. So I'm thinking, all right, well, what I'll do is I'm going to wait until the car slows down to where it's just about stopped. And then I'm going to hop out of the back seat and I'm going to go to the back and it's going to give me that momentum to get the car moving. And so the car got down to about a snail's pace and I opened the door and I hopped out effortlessly. At least I did in my head. Didn't quite go that way <laughs> in real life because here's what happened. When my foot hit the ground, my brain began to think, Wow, the ground's moving. That's weird. And then as I'm thinking about the fact that the ground is moving beneath my foot, I'm trying to get out of the car. And then I found out the car's not going quite so slow as I thought it was going. And so about the time I'm halfway out of the car, the, the back tire of his LeBaron found my foot, grabbed my foot and threw me out of the car, rolled over my foot. And so my brother, all he knows, because all of this, all of this genius is going on in my head. I'm not sharing this with anybody. All he knows is uh, his car is dead, the door is open, Richard's jumped out of the back, and there's the thunk, thunk, or the thunk from the body car contact. So what does he do? Jams on the brake. Great. All right, the car is dead, my foot got ran over, I'm on the ground like an idiot, and the car is stopped anyways. What the heck? Like I said, I did some stupid stuff when I was growing up. Tell you what, intelligence like that's got church planter written all over it, doesn't it? 
But my attempts to fix a big problem in my own strength is something that we can all sit back and laugh at. And I'm sure that all of us can share a story of where we've tried, especially the dads in this room, because we're Mr. Fix-It, when we have tried to fix things based on what we thought we could do. How many dads in here have ever taken something apart and not been able to get it back together? All right, if you're a dad and your hand is not up, I forgive you for lying. In fact, if you're a man, I think your hand's probably going to go up. We try to fix things. Nobody likes to read instructions. Gets us in trouble a lot, doesn't it? But what happens when this is played out on a spiritual level? What happens when we try to fix a ginormous spiritual problem in the strength of our own might without consulting the one from which all power comes? Today we're going to find some disciples of Jesus who are clueless as to why they have no power in their performance anymore. They're going to try to figure out why is it that we couldn't do what it was we were trying to do that we used to be able to do way back in the day. Where did the power go? I think we can relate to that, can't we? Can't we resonate with Paul who, who says the things that I know I ought to do, I, I find myself not doing. And the things that I know I shouldn't do are the things that I'm doing. And, and he just had this mental anguish from where he just, he's incapable on the power of his will to do what it is that he knows he's supposed to. He's powerless. He's frustrated. I think that we've all been there before, if not this very moment. But does it have to be that way? Does our spiritual walk have to be plagued with failure after failure, with power shortage after power shortage? Are we going to wind up like, I don't know, a group of people who come together in high school to worship God and the power of the AC doesn't seem to be very effective? Or can we live life in victory? Can we live life with the power of the Spirit played out among us and through us? Can we really put to death the sin that wages war against our souls? Or are we stuck in failure after failure after failure? The question for us to ask this morning is this. Can we really be the new creation that Jesus died to create? Can we as the people of God experience the power of God? And if so, how? Because I'll give you a hint. Apart from God, we're powerless. All right? I don't care how strong you think you are. Apart from God, we're powerless. So we've got to figure out from where does that power come and how can we tap into it. So let's go ahead and jump into our text. We're in Mark chapter 9 today. I'll give you a few minutes to turn there if you'd like to. If not, we've got it up there for you. Mark chapter 9, if you're new with us, we started Mark chapter 1, verse 1 on September 9th of last year. We're a little more than halfway through the book now, taking our time, and I've got to be honest with you, it's hard. It's hard for Walt and I as the pastors of Life Journey Church to faithfully tell you what it is that God has revealed in his word and have it make sense with everything else that we encounter. It is so much easier to do a topical, let's talk about four ways to balance your checkbook message. Some weeks I'm tempted to do that. But we're slowly making our way through Mark, and things have really begun to pick up speed. I'm not going to give you a recap of, of everything that we've done this morning. But just to kind of set the stage for you a little bit, last week we found Peter, James, and John up on a mountain with Jesus where they had the unique privilege of seeing Jesus transfigured. They were able to have a glimpse at the spiritual realm around us, something that, that I've not been able to do, not, not the way that they did it. I mean, they saw Elijah. They saw Moses. They saw Jesus in his full glory. 
And then as they watched Moses and Elijah disappeared, God the Father speaks down and says, hey, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. All right, don't hold on to the law. The law is no good for you. Don't rest within the prophets who were talking about a coming Messiah. He's here. All right, Jesus said, Mark chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, something that makes it sound like I know what I'm quoting. He said, the time is fulfilled. Everything that the law pointed to, everything that the prophets spoke of, it's now the kingdom of God is at hand. I brought it with me. Change your mind, repent, and believe the gospel. I mean, can you imagine having that kind of encounter on the mountain with Jesus? They saw the kingdom of heaven. Wasn't the first time it's been seen in Scripture. Wasn't the last time either. Elisha saw it. Elisha's servant saw it. Stephen saw it. John saw it. Paul saw it. Peter, James, John. We see bits and glimpses of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The two terms are used interchangeably in Scripture. We see glimpses of it through Scripture, but the question for us is this. Can we truly live as though we believe that we are in the kingdom of God? Because the more, we attune, the more we're in tune with that reality, that there is more to this life than simply what we see, simply what we experience, the way that we feel and hurt and breathe and move and work and rest, when we begin to see that there is so much more to life than just this visible temporal stuff, that's when we begin to learn how to live in the power of the reality of the kingdom of God. And so this heavenly mountaintop experience changes quickly when this group comes down to the valley and finds all hell breaking loose. This group of three men with Jesus experienced one of the greatest moments of their life. And then the very next day as they're coming back down, they find out, huh, things aren't so pleasant down here in the valley. But isn't that the way it goes in the life of a Christian? I mean, we have these mountaintop experiences where, I mean, we can just sense the power of God in our life and we are putting to death the sin that's in our flesh. And then when we put our earbuds in, we hear the angelic chorus singing in our ear and communion with God is almost a tangible thing. And, and then out of nowhere, life punches you in the face. Whether through a spiritual failure on your part or somebody doing wrong to you, Life goes from great to, what in the world? Where did that come from? And for me, most of the time, it's, it's acts of my flesh that just leave me going, wow, I thought I was doing all right. Where did the power go? How did my car quit on me? Something that we can all resonate with. These disciples come down from one of the greatest experiences in life, and they find that the rest of Jesus' disciples, the other nine apostles, maybe some other followers, they're engaged in an argument down in the valley below. There's a crowd of people surrounding these disciples. The disciples are arguing with the scribes. Come to find out, while Jesus was on the mountain, there was a man that came looking for Jesus, knew he was in the area, had a son who was demon-possessed knew that the only solution to this was taking his boy to Jesus. And so he goes to where he heard Jesus was. Jesus wasn't there. He's on the mountain, right? He's got Peter, James, and John with him. And so this man does the next best thing he can do. He goes to Jesus' disciples and says, Will you please exercise my son? I don't know how he worded it. But as we're going to find, the disciples weren't able to do this. Now, it wasn't that weird a request. Back in Mark chapter 6, Jesus gave his disciples power and authority over demons. They went out casting out demons. 
And so it's not like this, this man was asking for something weird. It wasn't like he was asking for something unusual out of the ordinary. He was just asking for something that he knew they had the power to do. Yet this particular day, their gas tank was empty. Their alternator was dead. Their car had come to a stop. And they got run over pretty good because they failed in their endeavors to help this man. And so the scribes that were there, being the scribes they were, took the opportunity to engage the disciples in a little bit of debate. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what they were arguing about, but I don't think it's a far stretch of the imagination to think that, that maybe the scribes were watching the disciples fail and then trying to cast doubt on the disciples. Come on, guys. thought you were Jesus' followers. Where, where is Jesus? Is he hiding because he knows that he can't cast this demon out? What are you doing, guys? You look like a fool. You're over there trying to cast this demon out. You claim to be followers of this Jesus guy who's nowhere around. He's left you high and dry. Come on, what's the deal? What's this kingdom of God you keep talking about? And so they're engaged in debate. And then all of a sudden, with impeccable timing, here's Jesus. Now, I say impeccable because as soon as he shows up, Mark tells us the crowd was amazed and they ran up and greeted him. So why were they amazed? All right, some commentators think that it's because the, the residue of Jesus' transfiguration was written all over his face, but I've got to disagree with that because if Jesus visibly was changed still in the transformation or the transfiguration, then why would he have told Peter, James, and John to keep hush until after the resurrection? And so I don't think it was that Jesus physically looked any different. I just think that it was right when the disciples needed him most when they were at their, at their least, I don't even know how to structure the sentence, when they were least able to defend themselves in their failure to cast this demon out, all of a sudden there's Jesus to defend himself, to defend his disciples, or for all I know, they just saw Jesus as a celebrity figure, and they're like, ah, it's Jesus, and ran up to greet him. But nonetheless, Jesus asked this crowd, more specifically, he asked his disciples, what are you arguing about with them? And I believe that he's talking to his disciples. Now, I suppose it's equally possible that he was talking to the scribes. He certainly wasn't talking to the crowd because the argument was between the scribes and the disciples. But it seems as though neither the disciples nor the scribes wanted to answer the question, what are you arguing about? Possibly because the scribes had no interest in tangling with Jesus. I mean, they had tried for two years now, and they knew that they were totally unable to, to beat Jesus in any sort of of debate. So maybe that's why they kept their mouth shut. They knew that Jesus was going to put them in their place, and so they're like, I'm not going to say anything. And the disciples didn't answer them either, perhaps because they were embarrassed because the scribes had a point. They were powerless. They were impotent. They couldn't do anything about this demon. And so maybe they were wondering, okay, is Jesus going to be mad at us because we couldn't do this? And and so finally, Jesus' question is answered by the crowd as the man who brought his son speaks up. And he says, teacher, I brought my son to you because he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I brought him to you, Jesus. You weren't here. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. Now, I know the scripture tells us that God is long-suffering. All right? We know through our own personal experience that the patience of God has got to be inexhaustible. Inexhaustible. 
But if there was ever a point in Jesus' ministry where it seems like he's beginning to lose his patience a little bit, I think that we're finding him there now. I mean, he had just, he was on the mountain, right? Showed Peter, James, and John the fullness of his glory. And Peter's like, hey, we got a good thing going. We got Moses, we got Elijah, we have Jesus. Cool, let's build a tent for all three of you. Why don't you stick around and hang out? Totally missing the point of seeing the embodiment of the law and the prophets disappear, leaving only the Messiah. They missed it. Chapters before, multiple times, Jesus is asking his disciples, are you still blind? Do you not see this? Do you not get this? Is your heart still hard? And even now, Jesus finds his disciples unable to do a simple task that he had empowered them to do just three chapters previous to it. And so Jesus responds with this. He says, oh, and it's, I don't even know how to translate that. All right, it's more of an interjection. There's only 18 times in the New Testament we find this. It's just one Greek letter. It's just a, ah, uh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring them to me. Just bring them here. I mean, Jesus' disciples still aren't getting it. They had followed him around for years. They had listened to the message. They had seen the miracles. And still they didn't get it. Still their faith was practically non-existent. So they brought this boy to Jesus. And it went from being a very socially awkward situation to a downright horrifying one. Because when the Spirit saw Jesus, he recognized him. Now, I used to think that what happened next was because this demon was scared of Jesus and didn't want to leave, and so he threw a fit. But if that were true, if this demon feared Jesus, don't you think that he would have perhaps been on his best behavior? That he would have either left this boy and looked for somebody else to torment or, or just not manifested his presence within this boy? Yet, what does this demon do? He doesn't fear Jesus. He hates Jesus. And he hates this boy. Mark tells us that when the demon saw Jesus, it immediately launched a brutal attack. Not on Jesus, not on the disciples, but on the boy. Verse 20. The boy went into convulsions. Not tremors, not shakes. Convulsions. That word's only found four times in the New Testament. Every time in reference to a demon possession. It's like... These convulsions are so strong, they had to create a new word for it. It's a supernatural, body-damaging, panic-inducing, fear-creating, spasming that's beyond this world, gripping this boy who is at least old enough to walk, perhaps as old as 11 or 12, don't really know how old he is, but this demon has got this boy, and he's spasming and convulsing, wallowing on the ground, foaming at the mouth. This boy is so entrenched by this demon, he can't speak, he can't hear. This is the mother of all grand mal seizures because of what this demon is doing to him. Picture that as your child. All right, you think seizures are bad? Imagine knowing that it's a demon within your little boy who is causing this pain, throwing him to the ground, injuring his body, creating concussion after concussion from flailing around, can't speak, can't hear, Scripture describes him as a lunatic because of the stigma of this boy not being able to hear or talk. And this is all going on right in the midst of this crowd of Jesus, his disciples, the scribes, and everyone else. 
And so then, in almost a surreal moment, while Jesus is watching this, he stops for a conversation. So, Dad, how long has this been going on exactly? All right, now picture this. The boy is flopping on the ground, not in control of his body. There is a demon that is just destroying this kid. And Jesus stops to ask Dad, hey, Dad, how long has this been going on? He knew how long it was going on. He wanted the crowd to know how long it was going on. He wanted the crowd to know that Jesus empathized with this man by caring enough to just bring his troubles to light in front of everybody. Dad says, from childhood, the word means from infancy. Not from birth, but probably not long thereafter. It's the way this boy has grown up his entire life. Years of this. And not just what Jesus is witnessing now, but, but Dad continues... He says he's been doing it his whole life. He's, it's often cast him into fire to destroy him, put him into water. So go back to picturing that as your son, your daughter, right? Not just going through these seizures, but, but this demon throwing your kid into a fireplace trying to destroy him or throwing him into a river trying to drown him year after year. And the despondency of the dad, it, I mean, why is he not over there trying to help his boy? I mean, don't you think that you would be trying to hold your son to stop him from hurting himself, to perhaps try to comfort him? We had to take my son Uriah for an MRI when he was, what, not even two? And just having to strap him down and put him in that tube and being helpless while he's crying for me broke my heart. And I'm trying to figure out why is this dad of all people able to just sit back and have this conversation with Jesus while this is going on? And it's because it was so common. It was old hat to this guy. That was his life. He knew he couldn't help the boy. He knew he couldn't overpower the demon. That's why he had brought him to Jesus in the first place. Matthew tells us that this man is on his knees at this point, crying out. He said, if you can do anything, if you've got any sort of power whatsoever, have compassion on us and help us. Help us. The word means to run to the aid of somebody, to see somebody in desperate need of help and run into them and rescue them. And this man is desperate because he's done. I mean, he's done. He can't stop this. He has watched this demon torment his son for years. The disciples couldn't cast him out. Jesus, if you can do anything, please feel my pain and help us. And then Jesus unloads this bombshell he said if you can if you if you can all things are possible for one who believes if you're willing to trust me to do it i can do things beyond your wildest imagination and immediately dad said well i believe help my unbelief like jesus if i didn't believe that you could help my son i wouldn't be here in the first place and i am on my knees begging you Help, if I'm lacking in the faith that you need to see in me before you'll work on my boy, give me the faith that I need. Whatever I'm lacking, help my unbelief. I don't know what you want from me, Jesus. There's a part of me that thinks you can do this. There's a part of me that doubts. I'm sorry. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's this tension of, I believe, but if I don't believe enough, then you're going to have to supply it for me because obviously I don't have it within me. Help me believe in the way that you need me to believe, 
to see your power unleashed in the life of my son. Help me, Jesus. And at this point, Jesus saw another crowd beginning to come up on them. We're in verse 25. But here's the thing. Jesus was past the dog and pony show. All right. He was no longer interested in forming huge crowds, performing miracles, teaching them, and then watching them walk away in total confusion on what he was saying. So he sees this crowd running towards him, and he rebukes the demon. He says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And I find myself wondering, what is dad thinking when he hears that? When he hears Jesus rebuking this demon, does he think to himself, this is too good to be true? Because he knew that his faith wasn't sufficient. He knew he was lacking in it, but still here Jesus was acting. And with one final convulsion, after crying out, the demon came out, and this boy was like a corpse. He had gone from thrashing and rolling around and wallowing like pigs in a pigsty, spit and drool flying out of his mouth, incoherent, not able to speak. He went from that to the demon was gone. This boy was so still that most of the people in the crowd thought he was dead. They thought Jesus wasn't quick enough. Jesus wasn't powerful enough. What does Jesus do? Verse 27, he took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. Matthew says that he handed him back to his dad. Jesus' power wasn't the problem. His dad's lack of faith was. If, if you can, if I can. The problem is not with if I can. The problem is if you can believe that I can. So this man's problem wasn't that Jesus was insufficient in his power. The man's problem was that his faith was insufficient to uh, use the word activate. I don't know if that's the proper word or not, but this man's faith or lack thereof was the problem. But he's not alone in this either because after this happens and Jesus and his disciples are in the house, his disciples ask him privately, okay, fill us in. Why couldn't we cast the demon out? Three chapters ago we could. That's only like two pages in the Bible, Jesus. I mean, we were, we were just doing this. Why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus said, this, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It's like Jesus is saying, come on, guys. Do you really think that you're going to achieve the supernatural by the strength of your own power? I mean, they had tried, right? They tried to cast this demon out. It didn't work. And it's almost like the idea of praying of consulting the one from which their power came from in the first place, never crossed their mind. Jesus said, you can't do this because you're still trying to do it, thinking that you can do it. It wasn't about you. It was never about you. It was about my power in you. And as soon as I go up on this mountain and disappear and you don't see me, it's like you think that you can just do it because you used to be able to do it way back in the day when I was with you. What are you thinking, guys? Trying to do this without me? Trying to do this in your own strength? Huh. See, now we're kind of starting to see where this ties into the church 2,000 years later, aren't we? Because how many times do we expect to see spiritual victory in our life relying solely upon our own power? Newsflash for you. We don't have our own power. Whatever power we've got comes from God. It's like the disciples thought that they could just hop out of the car and keep on pushing it because it used to go and they're going to help it go and got run over, didn't they? Got to find my place here. 
what happens when I derail my train of thought. And so Jesus' disciples are simply guilty of the same thing that we ourselves often do. They trusted in their own power to accomplish the supernatural. They thought that they could see the supernatural power of the kingdom of God manifest itself into this kingdom of darkness simply by the power of their own ability to have done it before without realizing that their power source wasn't their own flesh. It was from God. We do nothing less trying to experience the reality of the new creation and the power of our own strength. We really do. Here's what I mean. We find that these disciples were unable to do this exorcism because it seems that they didn't pray enough. And so what do we instinctually want to do? Well, we want to look at that and go, okay, so if I want to have more victory, if I want to defeat this sin that I'm still struggling with, well, I just need to get up earlier and make myself pray extra longer. And if I pray extra long, then God will give me the victory because of what I'm doing. Huh. You see, we, we like to go through Scripture and look at the do's and don'ts and say, okay, I'm going to do and don't do those. And for a while, we're successful, right? I mean, anybody can take a list of rules and say, I've got the power and the strength and the, the mindset of doing this, but how far does that get you? It doesn't get you very far, and it doesn't take long to get discouraged. And when you fail in your endeavors to live out in the flesh, what can only be done in the spirit, you lose your joy, you lose your confidence in the God who has saved you, and you are left trying to figure out what happened to my car. How did I get run over? I used to be able to do this yesterday. I was okay at this the day before. And the problem is you're relying upon your own flesh. You're relying upon your own strength. It's what we do. We try to fix things, right? And so we look at this and we think, okay, well, maybe the problem was the lack of prayer, but while the prayer may have been absent, I think the bigger problem both for this dad and for the disciples was the lack of faith that was evidenced by a lack of prayer. I mean, they totally forgot what Jesus had told them to do. They totally forgot what God had said would happen. Does prayer accomplish things? Absolutely. Does prayer cause our sovereign God to act? You know, in this weird, mysterious way, I've got to say, yeah, I think it does. I don't know how it works, but I can promise you that I pray for God to save my kids, even if, that, even if that's something that he already knows the result I mean, I don't know how to make it work, but, but prayer is powerful. But prayer in and of itself simply is words that leave our mouth. I don't think that those are the source of the power so much as the faith that backs the prayer in the first place. And when I say faith, I'm saying the kind of prayer by which we kind of plug into what God has already said and trust that he'll do it rather than the faith that we can just rub God like a genie's lamp and have him automatically grant our commands. Because that's called praying amiss, and I hate to tell you this, but those prayers aren't very effective. So it's not so much about the words so much as the faith that goes behind them. I'll show you what I mean. James chapter 5, James says this, and I know we're hot. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to work through this. James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Then he gives us an example. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, flesh and blood, just like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, that's crazy, right? That Elijah could pray and cause it to not rain for three and a half years? 
or that he could pray and the rains would come. But, but Elijah is simply trusting God to fulfill his promise that he made back in Deuteronomy chapter 11 when Moses said this. Moses said to Israel, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Moses says, be careful not to turn your back on God because if you do, this is going to happen. The anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit. And so Elijah sees the people of God turning from God and he knows, all right, God has said that if this happens, he's going to do this. And I'm not just praying for God to do this so that the people will be punished. I'm praying that God will do this so that they'll be brought back to God. And so Elijah's prayer was powerful only insofar as he was praying for God to do what God had said he would do. Elijah's prayer was an exercise of his faith that he believed God when God said, this is what I'm going to do. And so the power of prayer doesn't come simply from saying words. It's the power of the faith that lies behind the words. The problem with us in our weaknesses, in our failures, isn't so much that we're not praying right, so much as we're not believing God when he has said things that are true for us. Because here's the key difference between us and the disciples. All right, if you, if you track the disciples prior to the indwelling Holy Spirit at Pentecost, you'll see over here they have faith, nothing. A little bit of faith, nothing. It's like a roller coaster. But yet what sets us apart from them is the indwelling Holy Spirit that creates power within us so that we can accomplish things the disciples couldn't because of the one who's in us, Right? And so it's never about trying to do things by sheer willpower of our own flesh so much as believing the one who has said that things will be a certain way for God's people. You say, well, I can't beat this sin, Richard. Really? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he said, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. But God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you'll be able to endure it. I firmly believe that one of the biggest tools in the Christian's arsenal against defeat and sin in our lives is coming to grips with the realization that we don't have to sin. It is pure choice. We are not enslaved to it anymore. That's what the creation of this inner man is all about. It's about from unleashing us, from freeing us from this body of flesh that wants nothing but sin. But in our inner man, with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can say, I'm not that person. I don't have to do this. I don't have to feel this. I don't have to think this. And it's not that you're able to achieve victory in your, in your walk with God simply by looking at do's and don'ts and saying, okay, well, I'm going to do and don't. It's by believing what God has said when he says that he has placed within us a new man that we are no longer under the law, that we are no longer under condemnation, that God will never again judge us for the sins that in our flesh we still commit that we don't even have to commit because that's not who we are anymore. I wonder sometimes how much energy we burn trying to push our spiritual cars without even stopping to think that the only reason that we do good anyways is because according to Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it's God who works in us, not just to want to do God's good pleasure, God's will, but to even do it. And so to embrace grace as a faith family at Life Journey Church, it means clinging to the realization that it's not just grace that brought us into the family of God, but it's also grace that creates in this flesh the outward transformation that resembles 
the very power of God within us. It's not by our own willpower. It's not by hopping out of our spiritual car and pushing it up a hill because all of a sudden it's no longer doing what it used to be. The power has got to come from God. It's got to come from God. So what I'm trying to say can be summarized in our journey marker. The power of God is displayed in the people of God through the indwelling presence of God. I'll say it again. The power of God is, dis- is displayed in the people of God through the indwelling presence of God. Let me give you a quick illustration. We're going to wrap this thing up. In fact, our band can go ahead and come up while I'm, while I'm wrapping up. So here's how it works. I saw a news headline on Yahoo this week of some goober taking a picture of himself at Wendy's with his mouth on the frosting machine just helping himself to a frosting. No surprise. Do what? <laughs> yeah, you think it's awesome, but he got fired for it. Because when you do stupid stuff like that and you take pictures and you post it on the Internet, consequences befall you. And so I'm reading this article that's talking about this guy who was doing something wrong. We're just going to call that sin. And the question was, well, how do we prevent this from happening in future restaurants? In other words, how do we create the behavior modification that's going to prevent this from happening somewhere else? And one of the suggestions was, well, why don't we put cameras in all of the kitchens of our restaurants, and then we can put TV monitors in the actual dining area so that the people can watch their food being made. And so that the food employees, the cooks, the chefs, the servers, if they know up here I'm being watched, then they're not going to drink from the, frost, from the frosting machine for fear of being fired. And I was thinking to myself, well, that's a good way to accomplish the end result, but are you changing that person? All you're doing is managing the action. You're not changing that person. But isn't that what we do in the church? is we look at these things that seem to be expected from God's people and for fear of punishment, we make ourselves do it. Or to gain a reward, we make ourselves do it. But there's nothing changing here. It's all outward action. And so I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you could threaten these guys by putting TVs up. You could, you could make them behave for fear of punishment. But what if you could actually put the spirit of Dave Thomas within each of the Wendy's employees? If you had Dave Thomas within your body, you are not going to be drinking from the frosting machine. It wouldn't even cross your mind. That's not what Dave Thomas does. But that's exactly how the Christian life is to be played out. It's about the spirit within us being manifest through us simply through the renewal of our mind that everything that God has told us is true. That what we see here is temporal that what we can't see is eternal, that it's about grace. It's not about rules. We're saved by grace. It's not about law. It's about the person of Christ being manifest through us, not about the people of Christ striving to look like Jesus just so that we can avoid punishment. It's about letting the power of God come out from the God that is within us. And it's going to look different. We are in stages going to be transformed. And you might have the outer appearance of being transformed simply because you're trying to push your car a little bit, but you're not going to experience joy and victory in your walk until you recognize that all of the good that you do has got to be through God who is in you. So it's about renewing your mind. 
It's about recognizing it's not about me. It's about him. It's not about what I can do. It's what he does through me. It's not about what I will. It's about the will of him who wills within me. It's about being an instrument. Either an instrument that we use for our own selfish means or an instrument that God uses to further his kingdom. Isn't that why we're here? Isn't that why Life Journey Church exists? So that we can further God's kingdom in this realm of darkness. And so in, the, in this mess of a sermon, I don't know how God's speaking to your heart, but we're going to give you a couple of minutes. If you need to talk with Walter, I will be in the back. If you just want to sit there and go, God, where I need to start is simply saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Because for many of us, that's where it starts. Okay, God, I believe that you saved me. Help me believe that you love me. Help me believe that I don't have to earn your favor. Help me believe that it's not about my performance. Help me to believe that it's about you in me. I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, as we wrap up this morning, Lord, I pray that your people will forgive me for being long-winded. But Father, we're thankful for your word, for, for the way that everything makes sense if we're careful to look at things. But Father, there are so many of us that are jumping out of our spiritual car and trying to push it because we're seeing failure where there used to be success because we think that the success was all us in the first place. Help us to realize, Father, as your disciples needed to realize that it's about believing you. That our prayers are not about conforming your will to our desires, but our prayers are a humble act of submission by which we are dying to self and trying to dip our head into the kingdom of heaven and conform ourselves to your will. So, Father, we need grace. We believe. Help us where we are insufficient in our belief. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.